0: What has dragged you down lately? What is stressing you, worrying you? Turn to a neighbor and tell them what? Alice and Brad, you're gonna have to talk together over there. What has been stressing you lately? Parents, children, this is your chance to complain to your parents. You can say, you have been stressing me. Did everybody say something? Okay. Do you feel better now that you've offloaded that burden? Not really? No. Hmm. Uh, let me ask you this. What do you think? Do you think that life is more stressful now than five, ten years ago? Why don't you put your thumbs up? Or if you don't think it's more stressful now, put your thumbs down. Let me see what you think. What double, double thumbs up, I see that? No. Two, three, four. Oh, a lot of thumbs down. Really? You, you think it was always that stressful? Oh, my goodness. Okay. Um, there is such a thing as good stress when it pushes us, when it motivates us, but when it gets too heavy and it lasts too long, then we may be headed for a meltdown. Anyone had one of those? We don't like to think about it because they're full of difficult emotions. We would just rather never have experienced it. But not talking about them doesn't make it go away. And just the opposite, in fact, burying our emotions make them more explosive when they eventually do come out, and they will come out sooner or later in one way or another. I've always been so thankful that the Bible does not sugarcoat the real lives of the people in its pages. If the Bible was highly curated, the way social media is, we'd only ever see perfectly cleaned and manicured living rooms, perfectly made up faces and hair, the curated positive information. If the Bible was like social media, we would never know the sins or the warts or the the struggles of the people in his pages. And that kind of Bible is not not helpful to those of us who are not perfect. It should be no surprise to you that we here at ABC are not perfect people. And I've said before that perfect people really might find another church more suitable because here we struggle with our own failures, with our sin, with our personalities, And this is why we're in a sermon series entitled Biblical Meltdowns, in which we are looking, I I just feel that, don't you? Feel a kinship there. In which we are looking at some of the heroes of the Bible at their least heroic moments. We're looking at them because we too have similar feelings and similar issues. We have questions, we have doubts, and we certainly have pain and suffering. Last week we looked at, Moses, And this week we are looking at Elijah. Elijah was the prophet who butted heads with King Ahab, who ruled over Israel for 22 years, and who did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. In 1 Kings 16, 31, it says, As if it had been a light thing for Ahab to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. He took as his wife Jezebel. Oh, we love her, don't we? Jezebel, daughter of King Ethbaal of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal. In the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, Ahab also made a sacred pole. Ahab did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than had all the kings who were before him. And so Elijah was a prophet that God sent in opposition to King Ahab, which often had him running for his life. So Elijah prophesied a drought, which actually lasted three years. Ahab tried to kill him. He had to run. He went to live in Sidon, which is north of Israel, outside of Israel in what is now Lebanon. But in the third year of the drought, the Lord told Elijah to confront Ahab. And the thrilling story is chapter 18 of 1 Kings. Elijah called the king along with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. That's that pole type of whatever worship that they did. Plus all the people of Israel to the top of Mount Carmel for a showdown between Baal and God, the Lord. The other prophets set up a sacrifice as did Elijah and each side was to call their God to send fire from heaven. So all day the other prophets tried without success to get their God to, sh- to sh- uh, shoot fire down. But when it was Elijah's turn, Elijah prayed, and the fire of the Lord fell and consumed his sacrifice. Fire! Oh, that's so exciting! Calling down fire! Oh, I wish I was a prophet. Um, but more importantly, verse 39 says, When all the people saw it, the people of Israel... They fell on their faces and said, the Lord indeed is God. The Lord indeed is God. Their hearts turn towards God. And I want us to notice the success of Elijah's ministry for so many years. He had tried to turn the hearts of his people away from idols and back towards their God. And it looks like he finally succeeded. Then Elijah prayed for rain. And when it came, King Ahab rode back to the city of Jezreel in his chariot, Verse 46 of chapter 18 says, But the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and ran in front of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. It was a 17-mile race between chariot and man, and Elijah won. Ah, Look at God. God God sent fire from heaven, and then God sent a deluge deluge of rain, and then God sent Elijah. Uncommon strength for the race, and Elijah did the work of the prophet. He followed God's instructions. It was risky, but he was faithful. And if it was a movie, when Elijah beat that chariot to the gates of Jezreel, the credits would start to roll. God won. Elijah was a hero. The people were turned back towards their God. The end and if it was a sermon, we'd have to do some hoping and a hollering ourselves. And our hearts would swell in praise that just had to break out. And we would leave the sanctuary in victory, knowing that our God is awesome. Our God is powerful. Our God is a God of miracles. He is. He is. He is. Amen, amen. But if it's a documentary, where the movie ends is never the end. Because in real life, people go home and they think about what just happened. They process it. And then Monday rolls around and there's another challenge that is facing you for that day. Elijah went home and went straight to bed. I'm sure of that. And King Ahab King Ahab also went home and processed that day with his wife. And this is the passage that we're going to look at now. I just told you that other chapter 18 to set the stage for the passage that we're going to look at today. Not the miracles, but what happens after the miracle. Chapter 19, verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Oh yeah, I didn't tell you about that little piece of it. Left that out after the fire, and before the rain, there was just a so much bloodshed, and all those nine hundred and fifty prophets were killed, and Elijah was really upfront and personal in the bloodbath. And the reason I think that Jezebel reacted the way she did is because it was the death of her prophets. Never mind that she had killed all the prophets of the Lord in a chapter sixteen. But anyway, it was the death of her prophets, I believe that set her off. Verse 2, then Jezebel sent a messenger. Now notice that word messenger. It's going to come back. A messenger who woke Elijah, I'm sure, out of his sleep. Sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. She's just enraged and we can see it by the oath that she took. Verse 2, then Elijah was afraid, and he got up and fled for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. I'm going to show you a map. There's a little uh, geography lesson that we have to have here. Now, can you see uh, that Mount Carmel, can you see Mount Carmel in Israel kind of up to the side? See, I don't have a thing. Mount Carmel is up do you see it? Kind of to the side. It's actually on this, that side for you, right? Am I pointing in the right direction? Because I'm backwards. Um, and then, uh, do you see where Jezreel is? Jezreel. Uh, that's the distance that Elijah ran. And then he fled south to Judah. Judah's another country at this point. Israel's a country. Judah is a country. He fled south to Judah. And do you see Beersheba way down south? Look all the way south. Okay, that's 95 miles from Jezreel, and it's abutting a desert. There's only desert south of of, uh, Beersheba. And look at the insert, because actually it's going to come up that he's going to go all the way to Mount Horeb. Do you see Mount Horeb even further south? Okay, so that's that's the distance. That's the area that we're talking about. So he's fleeing. He's trying to get as far away as possible. Verse 4. But Elijah himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a solitary broom tree. And he asked that he might die. I wonder if you've ever had a prayer like that. It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Have you ever said enough is enough? This is the last straw. I am done this is his point of complete meltdown. It's been a roller coaster of emotions for this prophet. A high, he has, has dissipated by now, and he's now probably at the lowest he can go from the mountaintop to a pit of despair. You know, if he wanted to die that badly, he should have just stayed where he was, and Jezreel would have done that job for him. But he did not want her to have the satisfaction, so he asked the Lord to take his life. Verse 5, then he lay down under the broom tree and fell asleep. Suddenly, a messenger touched him. What what does the translation say? See, it does not help us. It's the same word as the other word when when Jezebel sent a messenger to him. It's the same word. Now, we're going to find out it's an angel, but at this point, he doesn't know. He's woken out of the sleep And the tension and drama at this point has Jezreel found him. A messenger came. He's jolted awake. And the messenger said to him, get up and eat. Okay, so that's not a killing messenger. It's a helpful one. Verse 6, he looked and there at his head was a cake A cake, a chocolate cake, baked on hot, no, it wasn't, it wasn't chocolate cake. Baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again, more sleep. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him and said, get up and eat, otherwise the journey will be too much for you. He got up, ate and drank, and then he went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights, to Horeb, the Mount of God, which is also known as Mount Sinai. It's 180 miles from Beersheba to Mount Horeb. And Elijah already had a day of travel under his belt. But let me tell you, it does not take 40 days to walk 180 miles. That's a, pl- a pace of four and a half miles per day, which is a saunter for Elijah. That's doable to the modern couch potato. I mean, we could do that. We could do that. Forty days. Verse 9. At that place, he came to a cave and spent the night there. And the word of the Lord came to him, saying, What are you, what, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, for the God of hosts. The Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left and they are seeking my life to take it away." Elijah, the powerful spokesperson for God, is now feeble and weak and lonely. A huge mountaintop high is followed by a deep low. Has this ever happened to you? Maybe we haven't experienced quite that high of a high calling down fire from God, or that deep of a low to be suicidal. But but this pattern of going from a high to a low is to be expected. No one can stay on that mountain top forever. Always, always, there's a coming down. If this happens to us, it's normal. It's perfectly natural. And some people hate that feeling so much that they chase the adrenaline, they chase that high. But that's not a place where we can dwell. We can visit, but we can't stay. There's always a coming down. So now that Elijah is at a low, let's investigate what's going on with him. And the first thing we notice is that the man is physically exalted. What did I say? Okay, what did I mean to say? He's physically exhausted. That's what I I, I thought I said. Physically exhausted. His physical body has been through the ringer. And as one person put it, the body wreaks a stern and humiliating vengeance upon those who neglect or despise it. The body always reacts upon the mind. You can want your mind to be, you know, soaring. Your body is going to bring you down to earth. And we don't get to ignore our body too long before it forces us to pay attention to our basic needs for food and rest. And secondly, he feels alone. He has been fighting against idolatry, which was embedded in the very culture of Israel, and so ubiquitous was the worship of Baal at this time that it was sewn into the fabric of society. It made Elijah lonely, one against everyone else. And now as he flees, he leaves his servant in Beersheba, and he is physically alone in the wilderness. And the third follows from the first and second, when we're hungry and tired, when we're lonely and isolated, our mind is not our friend, and in the deep lows, our mind does not speak truth to us, but our thoughts become toxic. Our mind puts the worst spin on things. It twists the truth. In Elijah's complaint against God, he starts out okay. I have been faithful to you God, I have zealously, with all my strength, tried to turn people back to you. And okay, that much is true. But it's surprising, did it surprise you when he follows with, the Israelites have forsaken your covenant. So yes, for a long time, that's what they were doing. But the last we saw, the people of Israel, they were falling down on their face, worshiping God, saying, the God, God alone is God. The Lord indeed is God. So Elijah left out the fact that the people had come back to the Lord. I alone am left, he complains to God, and that's not true either. And Elijah knew it. I didn't read this part, but in chapter 18, Obadiah, who was in charge of King Ahab's palace, told Elijah personally, face to face, that when Jezebel ordered the deaths of all of God's prophets, Obadiah hid a hundred of them in caves, and fed them, and kept them alive. There were a hundred prophets of the Lord. That that doesn't mean you're alone, Elijah. The mind is not our friend in the lows. I wonder what else Elijah's internal voice was telling him. I bet it wasn't pretty. What about your internal voice? I was beating up on myself this week. I just can't stand myself sometimes, I did not invite the people at the, at the Martin Luther King Celebration, I did not invite them to our Black History service in February. I kicked myself one way and then the other way all week about that. I'm like, how did I get so tunneled? I went to a Jew, the Jewish temple on Friday, and I invited all of those people to our Black History program. How could I forget? How could I forget to invite the people? I just... We say awful things to ourselves, don't we, in our lows? Elijah was thinking he was a failure at the least, and who knows what other things he was thinking about himself. How quickly Elijah went from victory to failure. So God has to do something about that, doesn't he? Doesn't God have to do something for his prophet? But first, we're going to look at what God did not do, because God didn't do some things that he could have done. And number one is give Elijah his own miracle. Notice that God did not snap him out of it. He didn't zap him with a ray of sunshine. He didn't infuse him with a charge of joy. He didn't lift his spirits. Elijah was depressed for over 40 days at this point in the passage that we're looking at, and there's no sudden, miraculous turnaround that we can see in Scripture. And in fact, through the rest of Elijah's life, we don't see a miracle for him alone. In fact, our passage leads directly to a very famous one-on-one encounter Elijah has with God on Mount Horeb, where he experienced He experienced tremendous rock-splitting winds and he experienced a tremendous earthquake and then he experienced fire, again fire, and God was not in those. And instead, there was a sound of sheer silence. And in that silence, Elijah met God. 1 Kings 19, verse 13b Second part of verse 13, then a voice came to him that said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. Does it sound familiar? Exactly, word for word, what he said to God in prayer between him and God in verse 9 and 10. Elijah uh, just just before, Elijah is as close to face-to-face with God as he can get in this personal encounter with God. And the only reason they're not eyeball-to-eyeball is because he wrapped his head in his shawl because he, didn't, he couldn't bear to see God and live. And he met God with his head swaddled, but standing in the presence of God did not bring him joy. It didn't lift his gloom. It didn't seem to move the needle at all. Isn't it wonderful that we can complain to God over and over again? That we can tell him exactly what's on our mind, even when it is twisted by depression. And I say that because there's a strain in the Christian church that implies, if it's not said out loud, that there's no such thing as depression in a Christian. That if a Christian is depressed, it's because they have not prayed enough. Or they do not have enough faith. Or they haven't had a personal encounter with God. You can't get closer to the Lord than Elijah. And God did not lift his depression. God didn't deliver Elijah from himself. The other thing God did not do is he didn't rebuke Elijah for being weak. He didn't say, where's my powerful prophet? You must be powerful and strong at all times. God did not throw Elijah away. He didn't let him off the hook as a prophet. God had more for Elijah to do, which if you want to read that, it's after verse uh, chapter 19. But what did God do? These are the things God did for him. God gave him rest. God gave him sleep. And another thing God did is God did touch him. I was interested that twice when God sent that angel, that messenger, twice the passage said he touched Elijah. He touched him and woke him up twice. Now, if an angel touched you, I'd imagine a divine surge of power, I'd imagine a shock to the system. And that touch did not provide that for Elijah. But it was a countermeasure to what Elijah was telling himself, I am alone. Well, you're not alone if God touched you. But he still kept that in his mind, I am alone. What else did God do? God nourished him. God provided nourishment in the wilderness. We need a whole sermon on nourishment in the wilderness. That's going to be the title. It was good food, too. Cake baked on hot stones. What you would expect in a wilderness trip is bread baked in the ashes. That would have been the thing that he would have been eating. But he got cake on hot stones and a jug of water. Oh, water tastes so good in the wilderness better than anything Elijah could prepare for himself, God gave him time. God sent him on a pilgrimage that took time, 40 days, decompression time. God gently led Elijah back from the brink of deepest despair. And God never let him go. Another thing God did for him. He never left Elijah. As low as Elijah got, God was right by his side the whole time. Now, we didn't read this part, but after that encounter on the mountain, or at that encounter, God gives Elijah three tasks of which he only does one, mind you. So the faithful, him, I've already done your, he only did one of them, which was to onboard Elisha, the next prophet of God, and which, by the way, took care of the I'm all alone scenario that he was telling himself. And God accepted Elijah just as he was and merely called him back to his ministry. God didn't let him go because he was burnt out and depressed and can't do God's work anymore. Elijah continued his ministry with Elisha until the Lord took him up in a fiery chariot to heaven. I wanted to carefully look at the life of Elijah because God is not known only in one form. Format. We would love to have a voice from heaven come when we're seeking guidance from God. We would love a touch from God when we're feeling sad or alone. We pray for miracles. I pray for healing miracles all the time. We long to see God's power, but by that we mean controlled power. We don't mean the power of that Moses encountered we looked at that last week but more often than not God does not overwhelm us sometimes God is known in unspectacular ways in the quiet in the silence and more often than not our journey in the deep valleys of the shadow of death in the valleys of the emotional lows in the valleys of failure they take far too long for our liking we don't like it there More often than not, healing comes more gradually, and sometimes not to the fullest extent, which is our desire. More often than not, God allows failures. I read one commentator who pointed out that it is part of God's discipline that he often requires his saints, as well as his sinners, to face what looks like hopeless discomfiture. That's not a word we use anyway, but hopeless, uncomfortableness, and to perish, as it were. It was the lot of Christ who, from that which seemed the infinite collapse and immeasurable abandonment of his cross of shame, who cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus warned his true followers that they too would have to face the same finalities of earthly catastrophes to die without the knowledge, without even the probable hope that they have accomplished anything in utter forsakenness, enduring the apparent hiding of God's countenance. Jesus calls us to discipleship. And it's not always triumphant. And sometimes God, for his unfathomable re- reasons, allow us to go all the way to the lowest of lows without lifting us back on the mountaintop. Elijah thought that the spiritual fate of his people depended on him. It was the work that God had given to do, but he thought it depended on him. And God unteaches the prophet that delusion. Who else needs to hear that word? For God does the work, not us. So when we are low, let us know that that is natural and let us know that it is part of our spiritual journey, part of our faith journey. Let us know that God's ways are bigger than human ways. And let us know that Jesus is with us, by our side, all the time, especially when we can't feel him. God isn't just there in the fire and brimstone. When we're through, when it's the last straw, when enough is enough, God is still there. Or we should say, God is still here. Let's say that all together. Ready? God is still here. Ready? God is still here. Amen. Amen. Let's bow our heads. Oh Lord, I do pray that you would hold us close to you. And I pray that you would never let us go. Hold us close, dear God. Because sometimes we go through we go through the valleys. And Lord, I pray that if anyone is in that valley, that they would trust you to hold them when they feel they can't hold on any longer. Be with us here. And we do proclaim that you are still here. A proclamation of knowledge and a proclamation of faith. Be with us. In this week ahead and the challenges that we face. Your name we pray. Amen.